0: Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, which provides affordable private online counseling. You can sign up at betterhelp.com slash best and get unlimited access to a licensed, trained, fully accredited therapist on your phone and computer through text, voice, or video chat. And now... Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the corrosive effects of our media system on our democracy, and hear some suggestions on alternate systems we need to build to replace it. Clips today come from Counterspin, Building Local Power, Unprecedented, Unprecedented, jacobin radio and the next system project plus our new midterm minute segment will highlight many of the upcoming elections around the country you should be getting ready for and remember that all of the details about each clip including their source and original air date are listed in the show notes and should be visible from whatever device you're using to listen everybody got
1: it wrong is the dominant corporate media refrain on the war on iraq Officials had intelligence that no one could have suspected was flawed. Reporters were swayed by persuasive government evidence. And alas, it went awry. The clear-eyed remember that not everyone got it wrong. There were plenty of people who said the Iraq invasion, besides being illegal, besides being based on deceit, would be a human rights, political, and ecological disaster. Those people just weren't on television who was an endless round robin of retired military and intelligence officials, with reporters fawning over them rather than challenging them. As Cokie Roberts, then of ABC News' This Week, put it to David Letterman, quote, I am, I will just confess to you, a total sucker for the guys who stand up with all the ribbons on and stuff, and they say it's true, and I'm ready to believe it, close quote. It's hard to picture a TV journalist making such a statement today, or is it? We're joined now in studio by Jeff Cohen. He's Associate Professor of Journalism and Director of the Park Center for Independent Media at Ithaca College. He's also co-founder of the group Roots Action, author of Cable News Confidential, My Misadventures in Corporate Media, and the founder of FAIR. Welcome back to Counterspin, Jeff Cohen.
2: Great to be with you.
1: Well, it's great. Strange times to be a media critic, you know, for years being a leftist media critic meant pointing to the structural biases of ownership and sponsorship of media and then to the kind of institutional biases of the hangover of McCarthyism and just the sexism and racism that all U.S. institutions are are part of to some degree, but with journalism then having that sort of patina of objectivity. But now where we're in this kind of all hands on deck against Trump mode, it seems like if you criticize the New York Times, you're seen as counter-revolutionary?
2: Even more so, if you criticize MSNBC or CNN, you're seen as somehow disloyal to the cause of deposing Trump.
1: Well, so start with MSNBC, where you once worked, and which I think many people still think of as kind of a, a counterpart or opposite number to Fox. What's going on there?
2: I wish. It is not the left-wing version of the right-wing Fox. I was watching Fox all the last few days, and when they attack Trump, It's always from the right. It's always from the grassroots. It's always he's not right wing enough. He's not conservative enough. He sold us out on this or that. I mean, generally, they're pro-Trump. On MSNBC, on their other hand, and you could see it throughout 2015 and 2016, if anything, in the battle between Clinton and, and Bernie Sanders, they tilted toward Hillary Clinton. They're more with the corporate uh, hawk wing of the Democratic Party. So, Janine, to get to your specific point about today, if you watch MSNBC, the people that are put forward as their experts, the saviors, the people that are going to save us for Trump, are in many ways a collection of war hawks, spooks, spies, dishonest people who progressives have traditionally attacked. I mean, our heroes are supposed to be Mueller and Comey, who headed the FBI, when many progressive groups were surveilled. We know that what happened under their reign for years and years, those two headed the FBI. If you watch MSNBC, you see people like Chris Hayes interviewing Barry McCaffrey, because McCaffrey's anti-Trump. And by the way, I saw Chris Hayes interviewing Barry McCaffrey on the week that we marked the 15th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. If there was a voice on television that was more pro, let's invade Iraq, let's invade them tomorrow, it was General Barry McCaffrey on NBC and MSNBC. So I'm hoping when I see, wow, McCaffrey's on with Chris Hayes, that maybe Chris Hayes is going to ask him to explain how he was so wrong about the need to invade Iraq, and does he feel he owes an apology? Instead, because McCaffrey's critical of Trump, I guess McCaffrey's now our hero. So uh, you could go one by one from MSNBC to CNN where they have Mr. Clapper, James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, when he went before the U.S. Senate and he perjured himself and said the NSA is engaging in no bulk surveillance. Uh, he's the hero on CNN. And so you find this collection of perjurers and war criminals because they're critical of Trump. They're put forward. On MSNBC and CNN – and remember, those are supposed to be the liberal cable news channels. They're put forward as some sort of heroes. They're going to save the republic, save progressive, save democracy. I just don't see it. And it, it shows, I think, the limits. You brought up the ownership. It shows the limits of – TV news channels owned by Comcast in the case of MSNBC, where they almost never bring up net neutrality, the saving of which is probably the main First Amendment issue facing our country and progressives. And then CNN owned by Time Warner.
1: It's so disheartening, this idea that the enemy of your enemy must be your friend, that we can't be uh, any more politically complicated than that, you know. And then also just that the best source is always going to be the guy with metals and gray hair, you know, even if he's the same person that lied to your face years before, you know, that somehow as a source or as an expert, there's no one who deserves that spot more than they do.
2: It's a closed system. It's a narrow system. What Fair has talked about for decades is we have a corporate spectrum. It goes from General Electric to General Motors. It goes from Hawk to Dove. But the doves are hawks and the hawks are superhawks. So so you have this narrow spectrum, and if you don't fit into that narrow spectrum, you don't get heard. And as you say, there are many effective critics Of Trump. Many people who could make a strong argument about why he should be impeached. Believe me, the strongest argument about why he should be impeached has got nothing to do with Russia. Uh, I'm part of a group, RootsAction.org, and we started an impeachment campaign against Trump on day one of his administration. And it was about corporate conflicts of interest. He refused to divest himself from his sprawling business interests, unlike Jimmy Carter, who divested from his peanut farm when he became the president in the 1970s. And it's a clear violation of the emoluments clauses of the Constitution. If you want a progressive critique of Donald Trump and why he should be deposed, you've got to go to independent media. The corporate media, MSNBC and CNN, will just give you the same parade. You know, I was in cable news, as you know. I wrote the book, Cable News Confidential, about my years there, and I was there at the beginning of the war on terror, and there was this parade of all these war hawks telling us why we needed to invade this country or that, how successful it was going to be. And everything they said turned out to be nonsense. And those people are back on the air. Well, any final thoughts while we have you here? You may think that James Clapper of the uh, formerly head of intelligence and General Barry McCaffrey and McLaughlin and Brennan, these former vile CIA chiefs, that they're your allies. They are not your allies. These corporate media conglomerates need to be battled by progressives. The military-industrial surveillance complex needs to be battled by progressives. They're not our allies if we want a more just society. Mm Okay.
3: The mm-hmm media being owned by too few hands, if, if memory serves, that really is something that started in earnest, that consolidation really started in earnest in the 1990s. Is that is that right? And there there were specific policy changes that ushered
4: that in? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you remember correctly, in the um, late 1980s, uh, you still had the idea that the news part of the t- TV, the television news, for example, um, was not a profit center, that the news was subsidized by the rest of What was broadcast, the entertainment programming, the sports, the, you know, the game shows. In the first Gulf War, I remember I was working at the Media Watch Group Fair when we realized, oh, the first Gulf War was the first war where new owners of major media outlets in the U.S., um, started demanding for the first time that even their news operations made money. As you remember in, in the 1980s and 90s, you saw Disney and Westinghouse and, General Electric take over the networks, ABC, CBS, NBC. That kind of pressure on for money coming out of news was new. And then, and you saw in the nineteen nineties with the Telecommunications Act up, that passed under the Clinton administration, uh, doing away with many of the limits that existed on how many. Stations a single owner could own in a single market. And it went from, you know, six to more like 60. And today you've got one broadcaster in the United States, the Sinclair Broadcasting Corporation, that at the moment owns 193 stations, reaching 7 out of 10 of all U.S. households. And if a pending merger continues or a buyout continues, they want to buy the Tribune Group, they'll own over 200 stations and really be a, a universal character from coast to coast. This is the network which um, was revealed not so long ago in a wonderful bit of activist media by Deadspin to have required that its new- local news anchors read a, a message, read a commentary ironically, around trust and fake news, but it was all about, you know, don't trust what they tell you in the, in the New York and Washington media. Our
3: greatest, our greatest responsibility, responsibility is, is to, to serve, serve our, our Treasure Valley communities, the El Paso-Las Cruces communities, Eastern Iowa communities,
4: mid-Michigan communities.
3: We are
1: extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS4 News produces. But we, we are, are concerned, concerned
3: about
0: trouble that trying responsible,
5: one-sided one news stories, stories plaguing our, our country. country. Plaguing
2: our country. The sharing of Biased and false news has become all too common on social media. More alarming, some media outlets publish these same fake stories without checking facts first.
1: The sharing of biased and false, false news has,
2: has become, become all too, too common, common on social,
0: social media. More alarming, some media outlets
2: publish the same fake stories
3: without checking facts
4: first. But to see forty or forty-five local news anchors all basically reciting the same message in unison was pretty chilling. And people got it, I think, the power of a single broadcaster today, um, not just to, to own and influence programming, but literally to tell anchor people at the local level, what they should be saying on their local news. This is new. This is called a must read. We always had must carry. You have to carry some, uh, content that the, that the monopoly owner wants you to carry. But must read, what that does is get the most trusted piece of this news ecosystem, the local anchor person that you might see at the store, or at the PTA, get that person to mouth what's, um, the agenda coming from head office. And, and that's really insidious and dangerous. So, yes, there have been legislative changes. Uh, they happened in the 90s. There's been corporate and financial changes that happened a lot in the 80s. Over the years, government has receded from the role of regulating any aspect of broadcasting. In the piece that I wrote not long ago for the Next Systems Project, I tried to remind people there was some history here. Government used to intervene at a very large level to regulate not only questions of ownership, but um, local news coverage and local news broadcasting. We're out of that business. We've been out of that business now for half a century, um, pushed, I think, by the very same advocates that dominate some powerful media. So you, you see why this is also, you know, also complicated because media is both the way that we, um, communicate about changes And it's also the way that we close off that communication and close off that change and intimidate, intimidate politicians.
3: Yeah. I mean, that Sinclair, uh, broadcasting clip that you, you refer to where they, people put together all of the reporters saying the same thing over and over again. It's really chilling. And we'll include a link to it in the, in the show page for today's episodes for people, for people who haven't run across it. But it has this feel of like, you know, anyone who read 1984. I mean, it's really, this sort of lockstep, or it's very Soviet, um, you know, in its, in its quality. It was this sort of window in how, you know, Sinclair is, you know, is an ag- it's a it's a yeah. corporation with an agenda, with a particular political agenda, but also is this extractive machine yeah. in terms of, uh, you know, the revenue that they're pulling out of that, in the ways that, as you said, are they're they're uh, trading in the trust that these local news anchors and journalists uh, have built up in their in their communities. How does um you know just to layer one more big structural problem on onto this, how how do how do you think we should think about the role of Facebook and Google? I mean, a lot of people are getting their news now from Facebook or YouTube, which is owned by Google. Um, and uh, you know, those companies are extracting a larger and larger share of the ad dollar, uh, not only not supporting journalism with those ad dollars, uh, but also because of the nature of their, algorithms and sort of the invisibility behind them, um, you know, really have become these machines for, per, you know, as we've seen for distributing fake news for like, you know, uh, this sort of outrage uh, and things that aren't productive at all.
4: The reason that I'm happy we're having this conversation, Stacy, is I often feel as if the media conversation takes place in some different category than the conversation that you raise about local versus monopoly economic interests of different kinds. And yet, really, media is a victim of the same monopoly tendencies in our economy that you see playing out everywhere else. So just think about it. I mean, 30 years ago, again, at the very uh, sort of beginnings of the Internet, people imagined, wow, we have this new world of free communication and uh, decentralized control, diversity, democracy. People felt like a whole new world was opening. But it coincided with a period of corporate consolidation that was happening everywhere and happening in media too. And that corporate consolidation, that monopolization is driven by profit. So when you have, you know, the same gamut going from, you know, the whatever they say now, 400 individuals versus eight, eight and a half billion people, um, when you have that contrast happening in the media sphere, you have a very dangerous outcome because what we're talking about is not just, you know, the, the products that we buy, but the ideas that get into our heads and Facebook and Google They never, I think, in their wildest dreams would have thought that they were the arbiters of our democratic communication system, that they were going to become the gatekeepers on our democracy. But that is exactly what's happened to the point that mainstream old school media giants like the New York Times – are in no place to negotiate um, good terms with a platform like Google uh, or Facebook because they're so dependent on the eyeballs that come to their website through that channel. And the consumer feels, oh, I'm getting all this diversity, all these different news sources show up when I put in a search term. But more often than not, they're receiving the same article under different headlines served up from many different sites. And the profit, if there, if there is any, is not going back to the original creator of that content. It's going back to the purveyor of that content. And therefore, the organs of journalism are made poorer and poorer, more and more vulnerable, and more and more kind of subservient to corporate interests. And the monopoly control of that algorithm driven, um, platform, uh, gets ever greater. So, I mean, I think it's, it's hard to even kind of get it through one's head, just what a monopoly situation this is. Media is not different um, from Amazon. Media is not different from Walmart. This is, is a monopoly problem in a economy of inequality. And what we're losing is information that is critical to our health. The other end of the consolidation is the desert, right? So you have the Sinclair story, for example, what is not being said when those sinclair reporters those sinclair anchors are mouthing what head office told them to say what's not being told is the local news what's not being carried is the local story and i saw a really chilling report in a health um in a, by a health reporter recently who talked to epi- epidemiologists people who study disease and they said you know, when you're tracking the, the the trajectory of something like the flu or h1n1 or or the Zika virus. Epidemiologists use all sorts of sources, and one of them is local news. This school was shut down because of a, an outbreak of flu. The local library is serving up new information about flu prevention. You, you get sort of wind of it at the local level. With the absence of local news, newspapers, radio, television, it tends to go together in, in, in similar areas. You're losing that capacity to track epidemics. You know, we're losing our tentacles. The tentacles that is, that absorb critical information about where, I don't know, white supremacist militia organizing is taking off, where climate change is eroding the coastline, where bird patterns are changing or um, plant life is being affected. So, you know, I try to turn things around. I say in, in on our program, we you know, in the wake of the election of last year, a lot of people woke up and they realized, oh, my goodness, we have, you know, the world's most wealthy, powerful media industry – but half of us have have it, it seems as if never to have met the other half. Journalists, the most well-paid journalists in the world, seem to have had no idea what was going on. Uh, we were fundamentally wrong about key things in the election of of two thousand sixteen, and in the meantime, in the vacuum, profiteers and propagandists were making a killing, giving people almost you know the, the craziest things to believe. What we Say on the show is it 's not that we need a new algorithm or a new app to protect us from fake news. We need a new level of attention to the media that we have the the media on the margins that still exists as your local community store does or your local small family owned business or farm it 's not that we 've lost it yet, but we are on the verge of losing it i don 't think we have more than three or five years of our current kind of wacky ecosystem with the little over here and the big over there. Because while the little could really be flourishing in this new technological age, reaching an audience and integrating itself into public consciousness, it's far more likely to be bulldozed by the monopoly in the town over. And that's what I'm really afraid of is that, is that we're actually living on kind of borrowed time for this media system that we've cobbled together over the years, and it's time for a real rethink. If we want a next system of anything, of agriculture, of transit, of communications, if we want a next system of economy, um, we need a next system of media, because there's no other way to raise the issues and the options and get that conversation started. Like, we can't wait till we've changed other things to change media. It's almost like we have to change this one first.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, which provides affordable, private online counseling. When you sign up at betterhelp.com best, you get unlimited access to a licensed, trained, fully accredited therapist on your phone and computer through text, voice, or video chat. And of course, they're LGBT-friendly. It's great for individuals or couples counseling, for anything you're going through in life right now, and of course in this political climate— who couldn't use a little extra help. When you get started, you fill out a questionnaire so they can match you with a counselor who's perfect for you, and you can start counseling today, but if you decide you don't vibe with the therapist you're matched with, you can switch whenever you want. It's less expensive than in-person counseling, but you're still getting the same great help from licensed professionals. A lot of people are not comfortable talking to a therapist in person, or they simply don't have the time, but with better help, you connect from anywhere you are, at home, work, or on the go, and if you have trouble affording it, BetterHelp even has financial aid available. You can sign up right now and save on quality professional therapy by going to betterhelp.com best. You can take a step towards supporting your own mental health and support this show at the same time by using our link to let them know we sent you. That's betterhelp.com best, and that link is in our show notes. Now for our new segment, the Midterms Minute, a look at the candidates and races that you need to know about, shout about, and support to make sure we have a blue tsunami on November 6th. Whether it's canvassing in your state, calling voters in another state, or donating to progressive campaigns in the final weeks before primaries, you can make a difference. We're going to go through these rapid fire, so keep an ear out for your state or district, and of course, all of the details will be in the segment notes.
5: Hawaii's primary election will take place August 11th. The state's first district is facing a crowded field of candidates, but there's only one candidate fighting for a truly progressive vision, and that's Kenyela Ng, whose endorsements include Justice Democrats, the Working Families Party, and 350 Action. In this heavily blue district, whoever wins the primary will very likely go to Washington.
0: In Hawaii's 2nd District, veteran and Bernie Sanders supporter Tulsi Gabbard is up for re-election. She's facing two primary challengers, one of whom is criticizing Gabbard's focus on peace and anti-interventionalism. Yeah, you heard that, right?
5: If you're a Hawaiian resident, you must have been registered online by Thursday at July 12th to vote in the primaries. So if you missed this deadline, voters are still eligible for late registration for the primary election at either an early walk-in voting location or an election day polling place. Absentee ballot requests must be made by August 4th. For the general, the online registration deadline is October 9th.
0: After Hawaii, a slew of Democratic primaries will be held on August 14th in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Connecticut, Vermont, and South Dakota. Today, we're just going to focus on Minnesota. Minnesota is facing electoral musical chairs in November. House rep and DNC deputy chair slash best of a left friend Keith Ellison has decided to run for state attorney general this year, and five candidates are running for his seat in Minnesota's 5th district. Of the group, Somali refugee and former state rep Ilhan Omar has been endorsed by Our Revolution, Twin Cities, Move On, and more. She's running on a progressive platform that includes $15 minimum wage and abolishing ICA.
5: Meanwhile, a hotly contested primary is brewing in Minnesota's 8th district, which flipped from supporting Obama by 6 points to supporting Trump by 15. Former news anchor Michelle Lee is running on a progressive platform that includes Medicare for All and Reversing Citizens United. She is also speaking out against a proposed copper-nickel sulfide mining project that would pose great risk to the Lake Superior watershed and communities.
0: Minnesota's primaries will also include selecting a nominee for Al Franken's Senate seat. Voters are choosing between Bush ethics lawyer Richard Painter... Yeah, he did have an ethics lawyer, technically, and former Minnesota Lieutenant Governor Tina Smith. Painter recently left the GOP and was endorsed by Our Revolution Minnesota, perhaps because he supports Medicare for All. His campaign is primarily based on impeaching Trump. Smith has been mostly ignoring Painter's candidacy and has been endorsed by Keith Ellison, NRDC, SEIU Minnesota, and more.
5: Finally, the Minnesota gubernatorial race is critical. As with every race for governor, the national importance is that whoever holds the office will be involved in the state's redistricting process following the 2020 census. Former nurse and longtime state rep Aaron Murphy has been endorsed by Our Revolution Minnesota, NARAL, and the state Democratic Party's Disability Caucus. If you're a Minnesota resident, you can register online by July 24th to vote in the primaries. Minnesota also offers same-day registration and voting up through primary day, but earlier is always better. The deadline for online registration for the general is October 16th.
0: We want to emphasize registration cutoff dates and absentee ballot request and submission dates are different for each state, sometimes even each county. We highly suggest reviewing your state's information and voter ID laws at rockthevote.org as soon as possible to ensure you will be able to vote in both the primary and general elections. You heard a lot of names and dates today, but we hope you will take a moment to check out the segment notes, which includes all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And today's midterms minute, just like every 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 activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if building the bluest of blue waves is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting progressive candidates across the country via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too.
6: Start off actually uh, because I know that you wrote a lot about Uzbekistan uh, and Islam Karamov, the the authoritarian leader. I remember reading about him throwing people into vats of hot oil and God knows other ways that he tortured people, even though we we were okay with that when he was uh, <laughs> when he would ally himself with us in the war on terror. Um, but but I digress. You wrote a lot about what went on there about Karamov. And what do you call it? The country of the future or something of that nature is, was the sort great of his
7: future state,
6: the great future state. That was his make America great again.
7: I yes, would say. exactly.
6: So uh, how about, you know, from your studies of Uzbekistan and Karamov passed away about two, three years ago. But under him, you know what the comparison of what we're seeing with Donald Trump and in the ways that that he may have used cult of personality and media and the
8: rest.
7: Yeah, um, back in March 2016, I wrote an article, um, it was called "Trump Minbashi, and it actually referred to the dictator, the former dictator of Turkmenistan, uh, Turkmenbashi, um, Saparmara Niyazov, who renamed himself Turkmenbashi because it means head of all the Turkmen, and so that kind of gives you insight into his megalomania. Huh. And then I also compared um, Trump to other Central Asian autocrats, including Islam Krimov of Uzbekistan, who you just mentioned, um, also um, Rahman, the uh, ruler of Tajikistan. And, you know, the reason I was bringing up Central Asia as a point of comparison was in part because of this cult of personality, um, the demagoguery. This is around the time that Trump had released that video of the little girls dancing and talking about making the state, you know, great through strength. And, you know, and it was just this incredibly, um, you know, post-Soviet kind of spectacle that I had seen so much um, studying Central Asia, but was kind of, you know, unfamiliar to people here. So I was trying to put it in context. So there's that whole um, aspect of, you know, what Laura Adams is a sociologist who studies Central Asia calls the spectacular state where you kind of try to mask your your corruption um, and your cruelty behind spectacle. But the main thing I think that um, at that time, abstractly tied Trump to all these countries is kleptocracy. Uh, it's the fact that the presidency is just viewed as a way to enhance personal wealth through setting up um, unsavory connections with quote unquote businessmen, um, you know, basically mafia or criminal figures, uh, stripping the country down for parts, stealing its resources. That's how Trump operated as a businessman for his entire life. It seemed obvious that that's what he would do um, if he got into power. And he did do that. Um, At that time, I didn't realize the connection to the former Soviet Union was so, uh, you know, immediate. And it's not like a metaphorical connection, but a literal (laughs) one. Um, But it's not particularly surprising that it is because they have the same kind of values and they have the same sorts of corrupt practices. And now he just has done, you know, the same thing he always did, but in the executive branch.
6: Yeah, you know, and, and that's the thing. I, I I'll never forget. It. John and I both have studied foreign policy, both, uh, and and have spent a lot of time abroad. And you know, before you came on, we were talking about. I did some work uh, through USIA through the State Department, and I'll never forget going to Romania. You know, and you still had in Bucharest in the main square the bullet holes. They chose not to, you know, tear down the buildings and the building walls from when they had had thrown out and executed the Ceausescus. Um and people still would you know I went to the northern part of the country near the Ukraine where people would still talk about uh you know in in sort of hushed tones uh, how fascism had had uh, taken over had run the state had created this cult of personality and I you know it it I a lot of what people had to say when I was there uh, and this is over you know this is a decade and a half ago was about the media which not surprising right how the media became such a tool of the state so I thought. You know, and I've seen you be critical, uh, which is, I think, how I first, you know, really discovered what you wrote, discovered when you were critical of the New York Times, which I've been incredibly too. But you actually, I'd like you to talk about, you went on Scarborough's show a couple of weeks ago, and now he, of course, is a born again hater uh, of Donald Trump, but the role he played, you look, you spoke truth to power, quite frankly, um, and looked him in the yeah, face. Not I,
7: they picked up on that, but yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> That's right well we
6: appreciate it. So I'd love I'll I'll shut up with my long question. I'd like you to talk about the, the Scarboroughs and the CNN and, and New York Times and your thoughts on the role that, that they've played and continue to play in this fiasco.
7: Yeah, um, you know, I've been very disappointed in the media. I feel like the media was um, to too large part uh one of the you know the primary reasons that Trump got into office and learned about this early because If you work in media, you know that financially this is a gutted industry. This is a vulnerable industry, and it's been that way for 15 years. Um, People will do anything for clicks, for cash, and Trump understands this. So there's this sort of mutually exploitative synergy that was always going on where he would provide profit and they would make him a demagogue. And I think they were in part so convinced he wouldn't win and that somehow this wouldn't matter, that this was a game they could play. And of course it matters. You know, he launched his campaign saying that Mexicans were rapists and murderers. It should have been shut down uh, and not encouraged or dismissed as a joke from day one. Um, But as time went on, it got even more disturbing because while I think initially the primary reason that these mainstream outlets boosted Trump was financial um, was this cash incentive Other things begin to emerge that are more disturbing. And, you know, Scarborough's show, I think, is a good indication of this. You don't just have greed um, and you don't just have complicity. You have threats. Trump threatened Joe and Mika uh, multiple times on social media. He threatened to reveal, you know, their secrets, you know, which we all basically knew that they were having an affair. Um, And briefly, uh, you know, the two hosts back in the summer of 2016 had gone through a little period where they were critical of Trump, and they immediately retracted that once he threatened them. They immediately began acting like his sycophants. And then once the information about their personal lives was out in the public, they became, uh, you know, to some degree his enemies, or at least his critics. And they began to criticize him in a forthright manner after it was too late. And then you see this in other media outlets, too. You see CNN, where Jeff Ducker has a framed Trump tweet on the wall and plays such an important role in, you know, remaking Trump's image as part of The Apprentice. And they, you know, put these, um, you know, what they call surrogates, on CNN, which are just basically professional propagandists and liars. People like Corey Lewandowski, who was... Ever Jeffrey Lord? God. Yeah, Jeffrey Lord, who, you know, stayed there until he literally said, seek hail, and had to be fired (laughs) for being a Nazi. Like, that's what it took to get that guy off CNN. Um, And Corey Lewandowski, who, of course, was Trump's campaign manager and working as a CNN pundit. Um, You know, and you really... This idea that somehow Trump and the media hate each other is on one hand very false. You know, it's a, it's a mutually beneficial relationship that they've continued uh, to work, you know, in this capacity, uh, even though Trump as the leader is explicitly autocratic. And one of the ways that he's, you know, trying to boost his, autocr- his autocratic practices and consolidate power is an actual attack on the press. You know, there are members of the press who he really targets. You know, I think April Ryan is a good example. If yeah. you're actually scrutinizing Trump, if you're actually challenging him, he really sincerely does want to silence you. And so there's, on one hand, these kind of fake views, and then on the other hand, there's a very serious threat uh, to freedom of speech, to freedom of the press, and I can't understand why members of the press keep encouraging Trump or excusing Trump or propping him up when it just digs their own grave. Because ultimately, you know, we all lose in the end. If, if one of us is silenced by this administration, eventually it will be the rest of us. And I wish that, you know, these sort of access journalists understood that.
0: If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do, or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, You might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but If you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think. I promise it does. And the more who join in the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time.
9: I'm not going to waste your time, uh, whining about, uh, CNN or, uh, you know what this guy or that gal said the other day at the New York times, the LA times, everybody in this room knows that, uh, there's nothing to be learned there. Uh, so I think that the media, the transformation of the media that we're currently going through gives us a, a peek at the fact, at the, start, at the rather challenging fact, that really at the crossroads of a new world. And it's going to be up to the citizens of this world uh, what that's going to look like and uh, cuz conditions are changing very quickly some of the to use some of the good old rhetoric yes the basic contradictions that we're aware of from the uh study of uh uh, polit- uh political economy etc yeah those still exist and they're still real and they still have real consequences but the world is much more complicated than that. Uh, I disagree with Susie to some degree. I think that those in power do a wonderful job of co-opting, co-opting and not just repressing. The word of choice in the United States, of course, is choice. You're told that you have a choice of everything. You can buy a trappuccino or a cappuccino for ten dollars and nine cents go to hungry guatemalan children so you do well by spending two hundred dollars a month on coffee you're helping the world you're saving trees or whatever the hell it is this week at at starbucks so i would posit this i would say that we are literally in the year 1492 literally and i'll tell you why something happened around 1450. And in 1450, Johannes Gutenberg invented movable type and the printing press. And he did it primarily to print the Bible. Little did he know that he was also going to spark an acceleration of the Reformation, of the Renaissance, of the Enlightenment, that The printing press was going to facilitate not only the Bible, but secularism, literacy, democracy, civil society, education, the scientific revolution, all come from the invention of the printing press. And the reason I say that we're in 1492 is that in 1492... Which was 40 years roughly after the printing press was invented. If you said, Hey, you know, there's going to be an enlightenment. There's going to be a French revolution. Uh, this is going to be a revolution in England, you know, with Cromwell and whatever. People say, what? What are you talking about? We're printing Bibles here. This is a Bible machine. And we're more than happy to pay three months wages because that's what it costs to buy one of those first Gutenberg Bibles. So nobody. Really, maybe da Vinci, who was of that period, could foresee it, but very few people could predict what was going to grow out of this printing press. Well, as it turns out, we are about 40 years, i.e. the amount of space between the invention of the printing press and 1492, which is a convenient date. Uh, we're about 40 years into the digital revolution, uh, that's all. And uh, we have seen what that has produced in forty years. And uh, there are some idiots out there who claim to know what it's going to produce. But they have no idea. Because the digital revolution is going to have a greater impact on the world than the printing press. And that is both an inspiring thought and a terrifying thought. Uh, and I have no idea which way it's going to go. But let's talk about the pros for a minute. Why is that even relevant to this? Well, there's certainly an aspect of the printing press, of the digital revolution, which has democratized information. I'm not stupid about surveillance, et cetera. We're going to get to that. But it has democratized it. It has, when Bob and David Horowitz, uh, that's a joke, uh, were, were working on Ramparts, there was a scarcity of information. If you were a 20-year-old and you wanted to know about Vietnam or the CIA or the NSA or the Agent Orange there was nowhere to go. You couldn't find that out. There was no place. There was a scarcity. Today, we live in the opposite. We live where there's an abundance of information. And the question is, how do you sort through that? How do you filter that? How do you utilize that? Uh, and that has, again, tremendous potential and tremendous dangers. Uh, but the gatekeepers are gone. Uh, Donald Trump has done the favor of temporarily, and I do stress temporarily, resuscitating a couple of newspapers. But they're in their, historically speaking, they're in their death stages. Uh, the Washington Post is floated by the $100 billion that Jeff Bezos makes from his uh, workers at Amazon who live in their cars and uh, that's sort of a sui generis situation. And the New York Times uh, does some very good reporting and has flourished under Trump. But these are temporary uh, phenomena. Uh, newspapers, anybody who tells you that newspapers have a future is lying to you. Um, they do not. When we talk about a real future, uh, you don't get most of your information from a newspaper. You get... Most of your information from this. And while newspapers produce some of that content, Marshall McLuhan was correct when he said the medium is the message. Content or information is radically influenced by its carrier um, for reasons of physical space, attention span, whatever. Television is very different than a newspaper, and digital information is very different from the other uh, carriers, even though it takes some aspects of them. What else has uh, the digital revolution done? It has not only democratized information because it is overthrown to a great degree the gatekeepers, but it has also lowered the cost of publication to zero. Now, it's your problem, the cost of publication, that is to say, putting up a web page with information on it doesn't what, cost What
6: anything.
2: about the servers that don't crash?
9: Well, that's an issue that we're going to get to. Good. So
2: yeah. somebody wants to give us a couple of million dollars to keep TruthDate going. because Well, that's we ha- true. We haven't discovered that.
9: There's them. no yeah. question that that's the truth. How you find an audience and how you keep an audience, and how you produce the revenue, we don't know the answer yet. We don't have the answer. But as in all revolutions, political revolutions, the old system is destroyed before the new system is consolidated. And we're sort of in that transitional period now. The old system is being destroyed, and we have many attempts at a new system or a new... Uh, ecosphere of information but we don't have those answers either we have some prominent attempts like truth Dig, we have uh people who do individual blogs uh, we have all kinds of models some work some don't we don't know how that's going to turn out just like nobody knew what the printing press was going to do 40 years after its invention i guarantee you that some poor son of a bitch who bought one of those uh Gutenberg Bibles for three months of wages said the same thing that uh uh I'm sorry it was three years of wages, uh uh said the same thing that Bob just said, which is, when in the hell are they gonna make a Bible I can afford? Uh because this bit of not eating for three years to buy this beautiful Bible, this isn't working. This is not a good model. Uh so, at least compared to Gutenberg, I hope Bob will give me that much. The cost of of, of publication is very low. The barriers are very low. Uh, we saw, and the third aspect, a positive aspect, is that uh, it also reduces the potential cost or the cost of potential organization. Okay, potential organization. Uh, that goes beyond just a hashtag or posting a fucking safety pin or a pink hat on your Facebook page. Next person who does that, I'm going to come over and beat you to death. Uh, it doesn't do anything. But if you want to look at a recent example, and not many people have, because the mainstream media didn't get it. When Obama was elected in 2008, they said Obama's team was tech-savvy. That's another word we should get rid of, tech savvy. They were tech savvy. They knew how to go around the mainstream media and speak directly to their followers on social media. That's a really primitive understanding of what happened. What was revolutionary, not about Obama, but about his campaign, was it was the first campaign in history where the technology didn't just allow Obama to speak to you; it allowed Obama supporters to find each other all across the country and organize. Unfortunately, when Obama came to power, he made it—he made the Obama for America or the Obama website. Uh, he turned that into a, a top-down, um, you know, hierarchical, vertical uh, uh, mechanism. A very traditional rather than a horizontal one that could have engendered social movements, but of course obama didn 't really want social movements, and neither did the rest of the Democratic Party because they get messy uh, but that possibility still exists for us uh, what are the what 's the counterweight to that the counterweight are things like uh, the end of net neutrality. That's going to be a problem. I don't think that's going to be a permanent feature. We'll see how that works out. But it's certainly a threat. The issue of surveillance, the issue of tracking, the issue of uh, these large monopolies uh, being able to... Um, I don't care that they know what I'm doing. I just care that I keep seeing the same goddamn ads all the time. I I haven't been able to figure out if I've already bought a bicycle, why do I need to see uh, 400 ads for bicycles over the next three days? Uh, And then there's also the bigger issue of um, what role entertainment plays in our society. I like entertainment as much as the next guy. But uh, the problem that we face in this country, uh, I would submit, um, is not police repression per se. The problem that we face is a fragmenting of our consciousness by constant diversion and entertainment and the myth of choice. People feel important because... They get their name in a funny picture on their checkbook and don't pay much attention to uh, how the banks are run. So let me just say that the issues that social activists confronted over the last 75 or 100 years are real, but they provide very, very little in understanding what we need to do and i don't have a prescription for that i agree with bob that we're all fucked up uh and that people in power tend to fuck over other people regardless of their ideology by the way uh and uh, uh we've had uh, bob and i've had some exchanges over places like cuba and venezuela but you know these are not models for us i'm sorry to say we have to think of what are the real alternatives to the system of global capitalism that we confront. I hate the word neoliberalism because neoliberalism is not the problem. The problem is capitalism. And capitalism can be quite enjoyable for those of us who are fortunate enough to benefit from it. And many of us do. But most of the world does not. And in most countries of the world, capitalism doesn't work. And you cannot just simply say to those who live under that type of oppression, oh, don't worry, the system's in crisis, it's going to collapse, and there'll be a socialist alternative. Uh, it means absolutely nothing. The question is, what can we do? What can we think of? In fact, to come back to my favorite comedian, Zizek, if you don't know who he is have, have some fun and look him up on the web on YouTube. The speeches are hilarious. To come back to him a bit. This is a time I'm not opposed to acting. We need to act. We need to engage. But we also need to think. We need to think. We need to figure things out. We're not gonna do it, by the way, we're too old, the people in this audience. It's gonna come from young people. Radical change and revolution, God forbid revolution, radical change never comes from old people. It always comes from the young. And they're the ones who are tasked now with thinking of an alternative for a more humane and more just society.
8: Did the way you think about your job and its importance change with the, the new president, who I think most people will, will kind of say has been, uh, you you know, not to let Obama off the hook, but he's done, he's been, I think this may be perceived as a more precarious time for journalism and democratic institutions more broadly. Um, as an independent journalist, did this view of your role change on November 8th
4: last year? It did not. (laughs) (laughs) My, the view of my role didn't change. My sense of urgency around the institution of journalism and reasserting some values changed because Donald Trump campaigned for two years by targeting the mm-hmm. media. You went to a campaign rally. The press would be in a corner. He would begin, and I've had many reporters describe this to me, by getting the attention of the crowd Pointing to the journalists and saying, bad people, very bad people, the worst people in the world. Now that's just whipping up a mob. Mm. And we saw that mob act, that mob behavior targets particularly journalists of color, women journalists, and anyone that stood up to Trump. And I'm not talking just about, you know, bad looks or boos and hisses. We're talking about harassment physical violence, people being dragged out of press meetings, out of public gatherings. I mean, it became dangerous to be a journalist. What we then saw is some of our most powerful media in the world, media that have not been our friends when it comes to reporting on war, reporting on um, grassroots organizations, reporting on social justice, reporting on social movements, um, media like the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal uh msnbc the networks some of the most powerful media in the world say that they were the victim that therefore under attack they needed more power and support and and while i'm i was excited to see people subscribing to papers and understanding the value of having a newspaper subscription i also saw yet again the kind of eclipsing of the very media that had been out there covering the roots of this kind of white supremacist mob that Trump was able to feed into and frankly the roots of the kind of sense of grievance that Trump was able to plug into you know it wasn't the the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or you know CNN who had been covering across the country the militia movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Occupy movement, eventually they cover it. But as a dear friend of mine used to say in independent media, no, it's independent media who brings issues to the boil and it's the mainstream that inhales the steam. So, you know, mm-hmm. once again, we saw journalists under attack and then the people moving into the spotlight to say, protect us, fund us, help us, were not the front line of people who were <laughs> <laughs> under attack. Uh, so my sense of urgency about the need for us to, protect the journalists who are the Ida Tarbells and Ida B. Wellses of today, the, the muckrakers of the 19th century, the people that really went up against big power um, when it wasn't comfortable, when it wasn't safe, um, going up against United Steel or going up against the Klan. Um, my urgency about the need to create a circle of safety around those people and those institutions um, certainly grew. But in terms of my job, I'm pretty clear about my job, which has been to um, keep raising questions about what's possible uh, and no less urgent a question than what's possible in this media world.
8: Right. Right. Well, I want to turn to your kind of alternative vision for the next system of media. Inevitably, when we talk about alternative forms of media, on some sense, we have to talk about alternative forms of funding this media. On the one hand, You know, we talked a little bit about the funding structures, the clickbait, the kind of uh, corporate ad-driven types of of journalism. What kind of funding and ownership models do you think would be a good good cure to this kind of (laughs) ad-driven media system that has kind of emerged today?
4: Well, I'm going to give a very Garo Pervitz kind of an answer, which is we need many. We need to try many possible experiments (laughs) and see which ones work. So that being said, obviously, there's not one. I think there are many. There are a couple of core things. And just to run through a few things that I mentioned in the article, I talk about um, state funding. Um, There is a place for government support for public interest media um and yet at the same time we don't want state, state control so when we're talking about public media we have to think about how do you get public support without public control again going back to my experience in the uk the bbc is a very wonderful organization in many many right. ways it has reporters all around the world it still covers the world that's what you get from a colonizing nation it knows there <laughs> are parts of the world that are different and has you know relations in those parts of the world um but if you happen to live on the colonized side of that equation the bbc coverage has not always been your friend so my friends in northern ireland would say there was a lot wrong with bbc coverage of what was happening in their streets so how do you have public support without public um control or government control um i think i mentioned in the piece uh, dean baker at the, the economic policy institute he has said years ago he said why not we ha- why don't we have a check off on our taxes where people could dedicate a certain amount of money, everybody would get the same, say $200, to the media outlet of their choice, the nonprofit media outlet of their choice. So you'd be using the federal taxation mechanism to generate a pool of money that would be directed by the individual, not by the by the state. So that's, you know, one sort of idea. Another one, if you want to stick within the commercial model, is, you know, if all of our new media, new economy sector businesses of all the co-ops and the ESOPs and the public banks and credit unions, next generation energy utilities, municipalities, if they all um, place their advertising dollars, their underwriting dollars with um, values-aligned media, um, media that was open to the kind of new ideas and new ways of thinking that – they want to see then right. we would have enough money for independent media, you know mm. thriving community media everywhere across the country. so right. you know another argument that I've made is you know if the old economy industries supported the old economy media, we do need the new economy uh, mm. businesses to support the new media because um, we're talking about culture shift, and the right have very well known how do you shift culture they've they've spent decades funding right wing talk radio, for example influencers on TV, radio and in print who never made a dime. Uh Rush Limbaugh didn't make a dime for a decade. Uh but his underwriters understood that if he could vilify taxation and vilify government regulation day after day, hour after hour for a decade, they would see a culture shift that would benefit their bottom line. And that's what they invested in. Our folks need to invest in the same sort of way. Um, but I do think we need to Two tracks. We need commercial support and we need a place in our media spectrum for public interest, publicly funded media that is not driven by, um, by underwriting or, or commercial interests. We need both. And, and mm-hmm. at the root of the second is a values, um, commitment that media, public media is a social good that needs to be considered a, in, you know, a a critical shared asset if we want to have a democracy, because we've just seen what happens if you leave your democracy in the hands of corporations who care about nothing other than profit, you end up with a Donald Trump, um, because, hey, he's good for ratings.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with Counterspin, talking with Jeff Cohen about the cable news war hawks that crowd out nearly all dissenting views, the Building Local Power podcast had on Laura Flanders as a guest to discuss media consolidation and its impact on democracy, our Midterms Minute focused on upcoming election dates and candidates in Hawaii and Minnesota, Unprecedented talked with Sarah Kinzer about how the media enables Trump. Jacobin radio featured a talk from journalist Mark Cooper on media and democracy and finally we just heard Laura Flanders interviewed on the next system project about building the next system of media that we need for further exploration on this subject I recommend checking out one of my new favorite podcasts citations needed which often talks about the failures of the media but in particular I really suggest you check out uh, episode number 34 titled what the hell is wrong with MSNBC now if you already hate MSNBC then you You may just find it cathartic and fun, but if MSNBC is a a regular part of either your or someone you love's media diet, then I'm not asking you to hate it. I'm especially not asking you to feel bad about watching it or anything like that. I only ask that you listen to some smart people being critical of it so that you can watch with a deeper understanding of the forces at work behind the scenes that help shape what you're being shown. So again, if you're interested, that's episode 34 of the Citations Needed podcast titled What the Hell is Wrong with MSNBC? Now, as always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
10: Kyle, Portland. Assignment for you or your staff or a listener, someone who likes numbers. I'm just listening to the health episode and I'm thinking here what's the average amount that an American pays into their health care and then what's the average amount that an American ends up having to pay to the health care system from their hospital bills so how much do they pay in the lifetime to the insurance and how much do they actually cost their insurance company the only thing I'm thinking is you know Unless you drop dead and you just have to pay for the trip to the morgue and the funeral and stuff. If you have cancer for a year and then die, you could run up an enormous bill. And more and more people, it seems, are dying slowly. So, anyway, I'm just wondering if there's an argument for the insurance companies charging so much.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I want to respond to Kyle's voicemail. At first glance, it's sort of a simple question, but I realize there's an interesting rabbit hole we can go down and get into some details. So that'll be fun. But uh, before I do, I want to address one thing he said, just sort of offhandedly. He mentioned that he had an assignment either for me or someone on my staff. And I just want to address that because I've become slowly aware over the years as, as people have gotten in touch with the show. And many people tend to refer to the staff of the show. So it's become clear that there is this massive misconception that there exists such a thing as a staff for this show. In terms of production, it is really essentially a one-man operation. I I do pretty much everything, all the the research, the pre-production, the production, (laughs) and posting, the the whole bit. Now, there is Amanda Hoffman, who I thank in each episode's uh, credits for her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. She does research and, and writing for that. And that, that's it. It's really just the two of us uh, making this thing happen. And besides that, for years, there has been one rock star volunteer who has been uh, helping, through the use of technology that he helped design, helped collect clips for the show. And aside from him, there have been occasional volunteers who, either in an organized or completely disorganized way, send in clips and suggest things to be added to the show. And all of that is very much appreciated and has always been appreciated over the years. But in terms of a staff, there's no one here but us chickens. Okay, so with that out of the way, I want to address Kyle's question He asks what is actually a sort of simple question in a complicated way. So he he was asking about how much people pay to their insurance companies and pay out in their actual expenses, like hospital bills and things like that, versus how much a insurance company spends on them, all of that. What he's referring to is what the actuarials figure out before they decide how to set premiums. He's sort of looking at the individual end of this process, uh, taking an individual person or the average individual person and figure out how much does a person spend, how much do they cost to insure, and so forth. But the simpler way to look at that is to know that insurance companies have actuarial tables where they don't look at any individual person. They look at gigantic swaths of people, and they can know with pinpoint accuracy exactly how much all of those people are going to cost them to insure. How many medical expenses are they going to have to pay for over the life of that group of people? That's how actuarial tables work. It is the foundation on which insurance companies are built. Now, what insurance companies do, as we should all know, is figure out how much they're going to have to pay and then design their premiums to guarantee that they will make a profit. So, the better number to look at for, hey, is there an argument for insurance companies? Is it right that they're charging what they charge because, hey, you know, trying to insure someone at end of life is expensive? The number you want to look at is their profit margin. So rather than looking at any individual company's profit margin or how they came to that number, what's important to know is that one lesser known aspect of the Affordable Care Act is that they limited by law how much profit insurance companies could make. In most cases, the limit was set at 20%. So they were allowed to make 20% profit, but no more than that by law. Now, before that law, they were allowed to make as much profit as they can get away with, like any other company. But with the Affordable Care Act, we decided we need to try to limit the cost of insurance, the cost of premiums, by limiting the amount of profit a company is allowed to make. So keep that number in mind. They're allowed to make 20%. Some make maybe a little less. Most are able to aim for exactly that number and hit it. Now, the comparison is with a government-run system like Medicare. And with Medicare, of course, there is no profit margin. It's a government-run system, so they're not trying to make a profit. They don't try to charge people more than their services cost them. So then we just have to know, okay, so how much do those services cost, which is sort of the equivalent of profit? Once you've paid for all of the medical expenses, how much additional money does it take to just administer the program? You have to pay some staff, you got to buy some paper and some paper clips. How much does all of that cost? Private insurance companies, they do the same thing. They got to hire staff, they got to buy paper and paper clips, and then they also have to give themselves a bunch of profit. Payback back to shareholders, that sort of thing. So the direct comparison that's fair is that insurance companies, although they used to not be limited and could make more profit than this, are now limited to 20%. And Medicare, for instance, their administrative costs are 2%. So that's the key number to understand when you're trying to compare insurance companies with a government-run program. Basically, a private insurance company costs the people who pay into it, whether it be a taxpayer or a premium payer, it costs 18% more to be insured by a private company than by the government. And now there's one other piece of this that I want to get into that I think is interesting. Because if you don't think about it too long or too deeply, you would imagine that insurance companies have the motivation to help bring down healthcare costs. That health insurance companies would be putting pressure on medical technology companies or hospital companies, anyone like that, to try to bring the prices down, right? Because they have to pay those bills. But here's the thing. They set their premiums to ensure that they always make 20% profit. So if medical expenses are high, well, then 20% of a large number is bigger than 20% of a smaller number. So insurance companies actually have the perverse incentive to help medical costs continue to rise. That's the benefit to the insurance company of medical expenses going up. The more medical prices go up, the more money insurance companies get to make. I know it doesn't seem like it would be that way at first glance because they have to pay those bills, but they get paid cost-plus plus they get to tack on an additional 20% to all of the medical expenses they know they're going to have to pay out. Whereas with a government-run system, they only pay what it costs. They have a small margin above that, about 2% to administer the program. And their motivations are to keep prices low because as as a government-run system, they would love to pay less in tax dollars. So then the incentives would go in the other direction, and a government-run system could negotiate prices or do – Any number of things to try to help medical prices go down so that the government-run system would have to pay out fewer dollars and would have to take in fewer tax dollars in order to run. So those are the key elements. Hopefully that all made sense. Keep the comments and questions coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So come to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show, from bestoftheleft.com.